Look, I, I really wanted to start by thanking all of you, right? I remember not too long ago, it seems, I was standing up here uh, as a candidate, being prodded and poked and asked the questions, and hey, what's this guy all about? And, um, you know, in those kind of moments when you see groups and supporters get behind you at an early stage, and then you make it, you remember that. I certainly remember that. So I want to thank all of you for the support last year. Um, and uh, I also want to thank you for what you stand for. You know, I think Sarah kind of summed it up. Jim certainly did. Getting things done, strong defense, limited government. I mean, that's what I ran on. That's what my career has been about. That's what I want to do as a, as a US Senator. So I wanted to touch on kind of a, you know, there is, as Jim mentioned, there's a, there was kind of a lot of turmoil last week, a lot of interesting things. The Pope uh, visiting. Um, President China was here. That was almost eclipsed by the Pope. I, I was actually one of four uh, Republican senators who got to meet with him on Friday, which was quite an interesting meeting. Um, and I think, you know, there's a sense and a tendency with the resignation of the Speaker and watching President Obama at the UN get enrolled by uh, all our uh, adversaries that there's a sense of kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of dismay things aren't going so good. I always like to kind of, I'm definitely a, a glass half full guy. And, um, and a little bit in what I've been doing in terms of some of my discussions, particularly with Republicans, is emphasizing, hey, we gotta keep, we gotta keep our eye on the, on the long term, a little <coughs> bit more than what's gonna happen tomorrow or next week. And um, it's always first important to remember that just a year ago, you know, we were all working hard, and then in November of last year, we're very successful in electing uh, 12 new Republican freshmen to the United States Senate. 12 new Republican freshmen. That's 25% of the caucus. That's a huge, huge deal. And a lot of you had a lot to do with that, and I think that's important to keep in mind. So, certainly maintaining that majority in the Senate is going to be critical we got to make sure strategically we're keeping an eye on that and of course getting back the White House because what we've seen is that when you have a president like we do right now in the White House the way our constitutional form of government is structured you know you don't always get what you want done you can't always move things forward but the other thing that I like to do occasionally and I've uh, you know tried to remind people is uh, is talk about kind of broader strategic advantages that we have as a country. So if you can imagine, and it's not hard to imagine, right now at the UN, right? If the United States is sitting at a table like this, a round table, uh, with some of the leaders of the world, you know, President Xi of China, Vladimir Putin, and they're sitting around and they're playing poker, which in many ways is what they're doing right now. Um, at the UN, high stakes poker. What kind of cards do we have? What kind of cards do the other players at that table have? Whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's Japan, whether it's Brazil, India, where do we match? Where do we line up? What are we holding? And one of the things that I, I am a firm believer in, a firm believer in, if you look relative to the other countries, in my view, we're still holding so many 
of the ACEs. We are. We are. Sometimes we don't know it, but we are. And uh, let me give you a couple examples of what those are. Think about the high-tech sector in America. It's not just Silicon Valley. It's kind of all over. A lot of you are even um, uh, part of that. And our finance sector, and our venture capital sector, and our private equity sector, and our ability to take commercial uh, take ideas and commercialize them. Um, our entrepreneurial sector. It's still literally, and you guys travel around the world, it is the envy of the world, right? China, other countries are trying to replicate that. Um, ag sector, we don't even talk about the ag sector, but we continue as a country to feed the world, right? The most efficient ag sector probably in the history of the world. Universities, so Sarah mentioned I had three teenage dogs, so always found at the Sullivan household. 18, 16, 14-year-old girls, um, which is great. Uh, sometimes. Um, <laughs> but my wife and I took, our, our oldest daughter just started college. So last year, my wife and I, we had the great opportunity, which was actually really fun, to go around the country and go on college road trips with your daughter. And when you do that, you really see firsthand I think the top 20 universities in the world, I think it's like the top, top. We, we occupy 16 of those. I mean, there's states like California, Massachusetts, many other states that probably have more great universities in, in the entire country, China or Germany. This is a huge, huge advantage that we have. Energy, you know, Sarah talked about energy a little bit. I'm gonna touch on that, certainly. Uh, what happened the other day with regard to Shell and Alaska. But, yeah, we're seeing the price of oil decline, but in terms of, again, the long term, the U.S. is now uh, the world's energy superpower again. Who would have thought of that 10 years ago? That was purely private sector, entrepreneurial-driven innovation, that we are now the biggest producer of oil, again, in the world, bigger than Saudi Arabia, biggest producer of natural gas again looking to export LNG all over the world, including from Alaska. 10 years ago, we were looking at importing LNG throughout the country. In that energy renaissance, and by the way, we're the number one producer of renewables too, not just oil, gas, but renewables. Huge advantage. That energy renaissance that, you're, that we're seeing now, if you go to places in the Midwest, you're seeing a huge spark in uh, resurgence in manufacturing. Not just in the Midwest, in the South, all over all over the country. Again, these are things that if you're looking and thinking about our comparative advantages relative to other countries, I think we have aces. We don't always realize it. President Obama plays it like we got deuces, uh, but we have aces. And it's fisheries, right? That's something that's very near and dear to my heart as an Alaskan, right? Again, top fisheries in the world. You go to places like Asia, I went to the Shangri-La Dialogue with Senator McCain and some other uh, bipartisan group of senators with Secretary Carter. Um, every country in Singapore, this big defense ministers conference, every country, with one exception, of course, China, wanted to be next to us, tucking into us. So we have allies who trust us. Again, relative to Russia, relative to China. And then finally, uh, we have the best military in the world, by far. 
by far the most professional, lethal military in the world. It's not even a close call. So, I think we have a lot of positive things as a country. Long-term strategic advantages over everybody. A lot of these are focused not on government, but on the private sector and the private economy. So what's the problem? I think one of the biggest problems, and the, to me, one of my biggest surprises as a freshman senator, um, is that the economy isn't growing, it's the worst recovery in U.S. history, and nobody talks about it, including us. Nobody talks about it. So the average GDP growth for the United States from 1790 to 2014, on average, is about 3.7% GDP growth. That's recessions, depressions, okay? That's what's made us great. You know it. You don't have great universities, you don't have a great military, you don't have great manufacturing unless you are growing the economy on a regular basis. The GDP growth under President Obama and his administration, average growth 1.3%. This is a huge, huge issue. It's not debatable, it's not like Obamacare is good, no Obamacare is bad. The economy under this administration has stunk. And yet, we as Republicans don't talk about it enough. Because if we start growing, again, at traditional levels of American growth, in my view, so many challenges that we have, whether it's our $18 trillion in debt and climbing, uh, whether it's uh, our national defense, whether it's some of our uh, entitlement programs, so many of these issues start to not fully take care of themselves, but they're much, much easier to solve. If we stay at the new normal, as they call it here in Washington, a term that I just can't even stomach, remember what they've done is they said, look, I know traditional levels of American growth are close to 4%. Under Reagan, Clinton, Bush, first term, 3.5%, 4 4.5%, 5% under Reagan. But now it's a new era, it's a new time, we got to lower our expectations. The new normal, is one and a half, maybe 2% growth. I think we have to reject that completely. We have to. That is a dangerous idea that this town is starting to fall for. So what's the problem? Why can't we grow? Well, you guys, I'm sure, have your thoughts on this. Um, but I think it's pretty simple. We over-regulate from this town almost every aspect of American lives, the American economy, and not in a good way. Yes, we all want clean water. Yes, we all want clean air. Come to my state. We have the cleanest water and cleanest air in the world. And it's not because of the EPA, right? It's because we care about it as Alaskans. But we also care about jobs. The examples of the over-regulated aspect of the economy and a, you know, Sarah, Sarah mentioned in a regulatory environment that's complex. I think that's the diplomatic term you use. I would be not so diplomatic and call it a disaster because it is a disaster. Let me give you a few examples. Shell, seven years, seven billion dollars to get permission to drill one exploratory well in a hundred feet of water. We've been drilling wells like that in Alaska for decades. 
This wasn't a Macondo, 6,000 feet. This was 100 feet. Okay? Seven years. Seven billion dollars. Roadblocks every step of the way. It's unbelievable. Let me give you another example. We had a Commerce Committee hearing um, where I'm very focused on this issue of kind of regulatory, not only overreach, but just insanity. Asked a, uh, the, the head of the Seattle airport, we were talking about airport and aviation infrastructure. They had built a new runway in Seattle. Asked them how long it took to build. Said about three years to build. So some of you might be in the construction industry. I don't know if that's good or bad. It seemed a little long to me, three years to build a runway. But then I said, how long did it take you to get the federal permits to build the runway? I had no idea what the answer was. He looks at me and says, 14 years. The entire committee, Democrats, Republicans, were like, you heard this audible gasp from everybody. 14 years. So we had a mine in Alaska called the Kensington Mine. Right now employs almost 400 people. Average mining wage in Alaska is $100,000. Average wage. Those are great jobs. And by the way, we need minerals. I mean, I know certain groups in this town think, oh gosh, we don't want to get our fingernails dirty. Well, we need minerals. Sorry. We're going to get them from somewhere. Let's get them from the place that has the top environmental standards in the world. That's us. Um, 20 years to permit the Kensington mine in Alaska. 20 years. Think about it. You could have been starting the permitting when a kid was born, and when he finally turned 20, he had the opportunity to work at this mine. So this is an area that I think is in need for so much reform. And by the way, on the shell issue, you have environmental groups and, let's face it, some of my colleagues who are celebrating. Yesterday, the day before, I mean literally celebrating. Here's the real story that the press won't write. They're celebrating because they're going to, they're saying, hey, we're now going to protect the environment in the Arctic. Well, first of all, I care more about protecting the environment in the Arctic than anybody in this town, trust me. I live in the state. Uh, I care more about it than some of my colleagues in the Senate, and all of my colleagues in the Senate for that matter. But they're wrong on that. They are completely wrong on this. I've seen this in my career. Why are they wrong? The Arctic is going to be developed, okay? It is going to be developed for natural resources. And it's either going to be developed by countries with the highest standards in the world on environmental protection, like us, like Canada, like Norway, or it's going to be ceded to the countries that don't give a damn about the environment. Russia, China. Okay, I've been to the I've been to the places many of you have been. Russia, China, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. You think they have the standards that we do on environmental protection? They don't. You know it. We know it. So guess what we're doing? We're sending that capital. We're sending the development of the Arctic to the places that have the least focus on keeping the environment clean. That's what we're doing. So when you watch Greenpeace and the Center for Biological Diversity celebrating, uh, they're not celebrating a cleaner Arctic environment. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure what they're celebrating. They're certainly not, they shouldn't be celebrating the loss of jobs and energy security that drilling responsibly in Alaska would bring. 
So I think this is a critical, critical issue. And I know many of you do. How to fix a regulatory system. And bureaucrats in that part of our government that are fully unaccountable. Let me give you one final example. The EPA, which is an agency that I've been very focused on making sure we have more proper oversight with in terms of hard questions. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go chair a hearing on the EPW committee in about an hour. And it's going to be a rough hearing for the witness. And, um, but I think that kind of oversight is very important. But I think they've felt the ability to get away with whatever they want to do. I think it starts at the top, and I think one of the key things we need to be doing, we're starting to do it, is provide the oversight that the American people want. Let me give you one final example. You may have seen, for the lawyers in town, the EPA keeps losing cases. It creates these big rules. They're almost certainly all not legal because they're not based in law or statute. And they've lost in the Supreme Court the last two terms. Big cases on the Clean Air Act. One of them uh, I initiated with a number of other entities when I was Attorney General for the state of Alaska. But on the eve of this other one, EPA versus Michigan, the administrator of the EPA was asked, hey, do you think you're going to win it on TV? <coughs> and she said, well, I think we're going to win it. But even if we don't win it, it doesn't matter because we issued this rule three years ago and all the companies had to comply with it and shut down coal mines and uh, divest in certain industries. So even if we lose, we won. Literally. That's not somebody who's accountable to the American people. That's not somebody, in my view, who's accountable to the rule of law. And um, that's one thing that we need to focus on a lot more as Republicans. But I also think this issue of seven years to permit a bridge in America, 20 years to permit a gold mine, is not just a Republican issue. This is something that <coughs> Democrats should uh, get behind. And I think it's an issue that we can win on. And I think it's an issue that's urgent. So it's something that I'm going to continue to focus on. We've already introduced some legislation um, on this. Uh, and I can talk about that if you want a little bit in the Q&A. But I, I will end by just saying, learning a lot. I want to thank you guys again. Also having a little bit of fun. I'll give you a final example of some of that fun. I was uh, home over August for the recess, and like most of my, my uh, Senate colleagues, I got to my state fair. And you know, you go to state fairs and you see a lot of pride, a lot of booths that talk about, you know, the great things in your state. We're a young state, as you know, we only became part of the union in 1959. So I was walking past a booth that said, uh, had a big sign in front, it was a pretty big booth, and it said, Alaska, pissing off Texas since 1959. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's an interesting booth. Maybe some of my colleagues uh, in the Senate might be interested in what's in there. So I walked in there, and there's a bunch of t-shirts. So I bought a couple t-shirts. And last, uh, last uh, week, when we had one of our policy lunches among the Republicans, I got up and I talked about going to the Alaska Fair and talked about this booth. And, I said, so I actually went in and, and bought a couple, couple t-shirts because I thought some of my colleagues would really enjoy the gift from me. And I'm trying to do this as a freshman to play nice with my colleagues. So I said, so can I have John Cornyn and Ted Cruz come on up and stand next to me? So um, they did. And I gave John a t-shirt that had a big 
big uh, map size of Alaska and then the, the actual size of Texas well within the size of Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> and that t-shirt said Alaska pissing off Texas since 1950. So gave that to John. And then I said, now Ted, not to feel left out, I got you one too. And it had a similar big Alaska map with a small insert of Texas. And this one said, um, let's split Alaska in two and then Texas will be the third largest state in the <laughs> So I gave that to my colleagues, and then I asked them to put it on and pose with me with a picture of this. So I could put it on Facebook, and as you can imagine, they said, are you nuts? <laughs> so we're enjoying it. we got a lot of work to do, but I want to thank you guys all again for um, the great support, and we certainly want your ideas and uh, on any of these issues, but I think on this, the, the regulatory issue, uh, there's so many ideas out there, and it is an opportunity for us to make the case, get support from the American people, because this issue is huge in my state. But one of the things I've seen as I've traveled around uh, a bit outside of Alaska is it's a huge issue for everybody. And everybody has a story, whether it's Shell or a small farmer in Iowa thinks they're not going to be subject to the waters of the U.S. rule by the EPA. So, thanks again. Look forward to uh, asking any, or taking any questions or comments. And uh, once again, appreciate the support uh, over the last year. Thanks, Jim. Sarah, you did such a great job. You can either have the first or the last question. I'll take the last one. All right. Very good. Anybody else? Ooh, this. Yeah, go ahead, John. Hello, Senator Sullivan. My name is Jonathan Gormley. I work for Bob Gibbs from Ohio. Oh, hey, Jonathan. Um, I worked last year at the RNC, so I work closely with your campaign manager, very good guy. Um, and congratulations, glad you're here. Thank you. Um, we're at, thinking about the campaign trail right now. We're at a time when a man whose battle cry is "Make America Great Again" is near the top of the polls, and it sounds like your message is "America is great." And I, I agree with that. Um, but you know, your perspective, fresh off the campaign trail and being a freshman senator, how do you synthesize and analyze for us that? What's our base telling us? What are what are those voters telling us who are coalescing around these messages? I'm just wondering. If well, look, I think it's a great question, and I think it's kind of the combo of uh, you know when you look at Donald Trump's uh, "Make America Great Again" hat and everything. I think that I think that really appeals to people because I think when you like what what I just tried to do there lay out kind of our comparative advantages and there's so many more by the way um, that uh, people know that they instinctively know that and yet they just feel this sense of frustration like why aren't we growing right. Why does it look like everywhere we're going now from a foreign policy perspective, we have the giant kick me uh, sign on our back? When we have these strengths, it is a frustration. And so it's this kind of combo of we know what we are. People get it. People have pride um, in this country. But they know that we can do so much better. And I believe that. I fully believe it. I honestly believe that most of our problems emanate from this town. And I think that a lot of people share that belief. So there's this enormous frustration. And I think that's certainly what Donald Trump has tapped into. 
And, um, you know, you could use that energy, though, for good, not just kind of negative focus. And to me, the key thing is how to challenge that sense of energy, frustration, pride for positive developments. <clears throat> I think that's the real challenge. And hopefully we're going to do that. Hopefully we're going to do that as a party. Got to win the White House. Have to win the White House. Or the stuff that I'm talking about in terms of the <coughs> just blob of the fourth branch of government kind of smothering the rest of the country is going to continue. So we got to unleash the private sector and the great energy of this country. And people know we have it. I think they know we have it. And yet it's been held back. And I think it's held back by what we do here. Yes? To do that, we really have to move from divisive issues, issues that divide the Republicans, like the social issues, to uh, the issues that unite us and make that our strength. And we have not been able to do that. To this day, the whole Planned Parenthood thing is going backwards, not forward. Well, look, I think one of the one of my surprises here is, you know, we're. I'll talk kind of marine talk. I mean, we have been we, we undertake as Republicans a, a little too much. Like I said, one surprise is we don't talk enough about the economy. It is a talk about a target-rich environment. It is something that we should be very, very focused on that unites us. This overregulation aspect of the economy, this unites us. This unites Democrats. Go to Alaska. Everybody has a story like this. Um, but the circular firing squad of um, uh, our party is uh, frustrating. And let me give you one example where. And part of it is the media, I think. They love to see the conflict. They love to play it up. Let me give you one example that we've been trying to, and it's a lot of the freshmen in the Senate who've been trying to break through on this. There's this narrative in town. I don't know. Certainly it's in the media that if there's a shutdown of the government, um, it's a Republican-owned and created shutdown. Doesn't matter what the Dems do. It's our shutdown. Well, I think that's actually I think the narrative is actually very uh, inaccurate. A lot of us running last year were very critical and dismissive, as we should have been, of the reign of Harry Reid, who never passed the budget, never passed the budget, the most basic function of government he didn't even do, didn't pass appropriations bills, <coughs> didn't do any of the basic things. So we ran and said, we're going to pass a budget. We did that budget resolution. By the way, if you look at what the President put forward and what the Republicans in the Senate put forward, we cut spending from his budget by five to seven trillion dollars. Okay, this is serious business. Those aren't small numbers. Then what did we do? We went and passed appropriations bills. We went to the Appropriations Committee. We passed 12 appropriations bills. The vast majority are bipartisan, very bipartisan. So what happened this summer? Harry Reid and the Dems came out and said, now they're going to filibuster all the appropriations bills. So there's been a bunch of us in the Senate saying, great, let them do it. Let's bring them to the floor. Let's vote on it. And let the American people see who is really shutting down the government, who is really making sure we don't move forward and fund the government. 
So you're going to see, and that was a lot of the freshmen kind of pounding the table, we got to make this, we ran on this, let's make them vote. So we've had two votes, they don't get any press, but we brought the defense appropriation bill forward twice now to vote on. The bill that funds our defense, the bill that funds Corporal Jones in the Marine Corps, and the Democrats have filibustered it twice. So, so we're going to bring more. You're going to see in the next couple of weeks, we're going to bring more and more. We're doing our job. Who's shutting down the government? Two years ago, you had a Democrat majority and a Republican minority that filibustered, and there was a government shutdown. And a lot of the blame fell on us. Now you have a Republican majority and a Democrat minority that's filibustering government spending, so shouldn't the narrative be, you guys are doing it? So I think there's a lot we can unite on, and um, I certainly hope that we're keeping our uh, focus more on the president and the filibustering Democrats in the Senate, which is where the blame should lie, as opposed to each other, and that would be my goal. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you noted, Senator, was um, our comparative advantages. The one thing I'd like to highlight dead last in this, in this world is our tax policy. Yeah. So, highest corporate rate, yep. companies can't bring home their foreign cash. Yep. And you also talked about the high tech sector. So, Amgen is a biopharma company. If you look around at what's happening now, it's the US biotech companies are going to solve and it's going to require internationals. Why, why, why are they? Why do you think? <coughs> a lot of that is because our anti-competitive tax yeah. code. You know, you can acquire a foreign multinational, can acquire a U.S. biopharma company yeah. and drop the tax rate in half right. or more. Right. So I think that has a lot. No, of I think what you're talking about illustrates my point. You tell me, but my understanding, the biotech industry and the most creative companies and the most creative entrepreneurs are not in China, they're not in Germany, they're not in Japan. <coughs> they're right here. That's another area, in my view, of comparative advantage. And it's based on entrepreneurship, you know, the ability, as I mentioned, to bring good ideas to market, working in collaboration with some of these amazing universities that we have here. So that's a great comparative advantage. We have it. What's the government doing? We're making it so it's much harder, as you say, with a tax rate that's not competitive and that's actually disadvantageous. And then you have Hillary Clinton making her announcements that's crashing um, biotech stocks uh, just by talking about what kind of policies she would you know crush our country with so um, again we have comparative advantages and what we need to do here in Washington is help ignite these not smother them. and right now we're better at smothering them than igniting them. Robert just to follow up on the point, Senator, that you made in response to Congresswoman Johnson's question of how the Senate is is no longer the Senate. Um, the New York Times today, it goes to Ted Kennedy, is, is haunting Harry Reid. Uh, a bunch of interviews were released, um, and Kennedy, in one of them, blasts Harry Reid for killing immigration reform back in 2007. And his argument was um, that Harry Reid would not let the Senate be the Senate and amend use the amendment process yeah. to build 
uh, bipartisanship to essentially build ownership onto a, a big piece of legislation. And he expressed worry that that not just not not just because of the failure to do immigration reform, but for the broader challenge that you're encountering eight years later. Yeah. Um, so and in, in him now using the filibuster to essentially prevent the Senate being Senate. So um, well, it's a real challenge. You know, and one of the things that and you don't read about this in the in the press and everything, but one of the things I so I consider myself certainly right of center center. Sometimes I vote with the, you know, certainly more conservative block of senators. Sometimes I'm with the leadership. So I'm kind of in between. And that's just where I am philosophically. That's where I was as a candidate. Um, but I certainly try to uh, work with the other side. I've, you know, dinners and lunches and meetings. I'm all about trying to make friends and find common ground with certainly Republicans, but also Democrats. Um, you know, some might, I'm going to go to a football game this weekend with Cory Booker. Don't have much in common with him from a policy standpoint, but I really like the guy. He's a good guy, and I'm sure we will have the opportunity to, to um, you know, probably collaborate. My first, one of my first amendments dealt with the fishing industry. You know, we, I, I like to call Alaska, we're the superpower of seafood. <laughs> Almost 60% of all seafood harvested in America comes from Alaska. So, and we are a huge exporters. So we export last year almost $2.5 billion worth of seafood overseas. A, a state of 730,000 people. So it's a big issue for me. So on these TPA negotiations where I, I was very supportive, worked with the president's cabinet, tried to help round up votes. Uh, worked with Froman, the USTR, Secretary Pritzker, Secretary Liu. So I got an amendment that is hopefully going to get through. It's not in TPA, but it's in the Customs Bill on principal negotiating objectives for our U.S. trade rep. Meredith knows about this stuff. On opening markets for American seafood products, which the Asians love. And we've never had that as a principal negotiating objective ever in any TPA previously. And to go after foreign subsidies. Because uh, a lot of foreign fishing fleets are heavily subsidized by the government, their governments, ours or not. So I thought this is a really important issue, certainly for my state, but even for the country. And I was trying to work this into the TPA bill and the custom bill, which I ended up doing. But I found that, hey, it's important to go get some Democrat co-sponsors. So this amendment was not called the Sullivan Amendment. This was called the um, Sullivan-Markey-Warren Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's looking at me like, oh God. Uh, so I went home to Alaska and I was bragging about the Sullivan Markey Warren Amendment, you know, and how that's going to help our industry. And, you know, trust me, I got a couple looks, right? Really? So what? That's the Senate. Those guys, those guys have a fishing industry too, and they care about this issue, and that helps their fishermen and people from Massachusetts. So, Look, I just think if it's good for the country and good for my state, then I'll work with anybody. And uh, we're trying. I think a lot of freshmen have that <coughs> attitude, and hopefully we can bring a little bit more of that working across the aisle idea. But it is hard, right? It's hard to it's hard to do with some of the guys on the other side of the aisle. Senator, your former White House fellow gentleman, Tim, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. 
I think your remarks are spot on. And I think your focus is, is fantastic. Economic growth is critical. But I'd be remiss, and I think we would uh, uh, regret not hearing um, a little bit about your views on foreign policy, yeah. an area you know a ton about, yeah. you're an expert in this area. In the absence of any American foreign policy coming out of the White House right now, and with the hopes that you know, we regain the White House, regain control, yeah. establish a foreign policy, it's a big question. But what directions? You know, do we need to set off to, you know, reestablish our leadership in this space right now? I, I really appreciate well, look, it's a huge, it's a huge issue, and um, I mean, I could go. So I'm on the Armed Services Committee and Veterans Affairs Committee. I've kind of been asked, which is nice, uh, encouraged, I would say, by a number of senators more senior than me. By the way, I'm number 100, so everybody's more senior. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Um, yeah, they're all more senior than me. Um, but to to kind of take, to be kind of a next generation, uh, particularly on the Asia, economic, military, Asia Pacific, you know, Alaska is an Asia Pacific state. I've served out in uh, Asia Pacific as a Marine. and. Um, is an assistant secretary of state. I did a lot of work over in China, and, uh, Japan, and other countries in the region. So I've been out there a couple times already with Senator McCain. Uh, talked about the Shangri-La dialogue uh, trip. I went to Vietnam with John McCain, which was quite a memorable trip for me. Um, and then I did my own CODEL, where I went to PACOM and Hawaii. I went to Guam. I went to Okinawa. We're doing this big military rebound. So I went to Tokyo. <coughs> had one-on-one -on -one meetings with the Prime Minister, I mean, so in his cabinet members. My big thing is I think it's very clear that uh, this president, and you see it, he, he's, not a, he's not a strong believer in the, the uh, importance, and it, you know, you can't psychoanalyze uh, the man in the White House, but you can just sense it that there's not a sense that when we're engaged that he thinks that helps. I think there has been, whether it's a purposeful strategy or it's just kind of through inertia, this sense that we need to withdraw, the sense that we have to pull back. And uh, we're seeing what happens when the vacuum of American leadership is filled by countries that are not going to advance America's interests. I don't even think they advance anyone's interests but their own. So the biggest problem in my view is not just that, but the loss of credibility all over the world. Because if you listen to President Obama's speeches, or when you listen to Secretary Carter, who I haven't had a lot of respect for, um, they make these policy pronouncements that are pretty strong, pretty serious, and then we never follow up with action. And they're start, it's starting to get just really like a broken record. Let me give you one specific example. In the South China Sea, Secretary Carter at the Shangri-La Dialogue, this is every minister of defense in Asia, uh, gives this really good speech. We were there. We were applauding. We actually made a point of making sure that we kind of Democrat, so it was Jack Reed, me, John McCain, Joni Ernst, that we were kind of seeing with the Secretary of Defense, hey, this is the executive branch, 
legislative branch, Democrats, Republicans, Asia, we're here. Okay? Don't worry. He gives a strong speech about, hey, we're going to sail, fly, and be everywhere that we can be internationally, as we have always been, to keep lines of commerce, security and prosperity in the Asia Pacific open and going forward. And then he said, in a submerged rock or reef does not give a country the authority to call that sovereign territory. Okay, <coughs> it's pretty strong. I thought it was great. I told him it was a great speech. Then we find out, pretty much through an armed services hearing, that the military, and they didn't fully say it, but if you look at the transcripts of the Q&A that we had with the PACOM commander recently, that the military has been essentially saying, hey, we need to, we need to do what Secretary Carter said. We need to go inside the 12-mile limit to these um, artificial islands that the Chinese are building to just demonstrate, hey, we're not, we don't, we're not going to let you have a de facto change of status to one of the most important sea lanes in the world that we have kept open for decades. And the White House has been denying them. I mean, again, they didn't say that, but go look at the transcript of the hearing. I was pressing Admiral Harris, the PACOM commander on this. I asked him directly, if you requested permission to sail inside the 12 mile of these well centered around, have you? They have. And they're being told no. I'm almost sure that's the case. I mean, there's nothing, I, I'm pretty sure that's the case. So, what does that do? That is, uh, you know, some people say, well, we don't want to be provocative. But it's more provocative to let a country change the complete facts on the ground and not <clears throat> challenge them, particularly after a speech that, you're, that was given that was very strong. And by the way, like I said, at that conference, every, we, we met with a lot of ministers of defense. Every one of these countries loved the speech, wants us to show American resolve, and yet, we don't do it. And you guys know there's a million examples of that. There's Syria, there's Russia, there's Ukraine, there's, I mean, it is, the list is long and it's almost becoming laughable. And I think it just creates more danger. I truly do. I'll give you one kind of related example. It was a long time ago, but during the Taiwan Strait crisis in 1996, President Clinton surged two, two carrier battles. Okay, it was a big deal. And at the time, China said, hey, the Taiwan Strait is our internal waterway. They were saying that. That's our water. Don't go in there. Well, I was on a Marine amphibious assault ship as an infantry officer, a young lieutenant, on a ship that said, no, it's not. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to go right through the Taiwan Strait to show you what this is. It's an international waterway that we've been protecting for decades, and we're going to continue to protect it. So we did, and, um, and by the way, we still do that on a fairly regular basis, which I think is a good policy, just to remind them. But we're not doing that now, and that's just going to create a, a problem later. So um, we have a lot to make up for. But to me, again, one of the strongest things we can do, even on our military side, is get back to real levels of American GDP growth. That's the way you ultimately have strength country and uh, we can get there we just gotta 
get this town to be part of the Senator solution. Mike just grabbed my eye and he said it's time for us to go. On behalf of this, this has been a great, great morning, and we wanted to present with you, you know, one of the iconic photographers of America, Ansel Adams, on, you know, in the national parks, which could just actually be Alaska, which is just one huge national park. But I'm well, here. We're trying to prevent that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it is interesting. You hear me going on another topic. <laughs> we, we do have uh, a, a. This was outdated because we bought it last week because it has Mount McKinley in there and oh, now yeah. Denali. So on your parting comments, are you are Alaskans excited about the new name? Yeah, you know, I've said this for, you know, uh, and I know we have, is there a staff from Ralph Regula here? I, I'm really sorry about this. We have Jonathan right over here. Oh, I said that Obama's executive orders have hurt Alaska for so many years on so such a regular basis that we were all kind of stunned that it was actually an executive order that was uh, beneficial. But, you know, um, the Athabascan people of Alaska, so this is one of the native groups over there, my wife's Athabascan, uh, they named this mountain thousands of years ago, Denali. So we just think it's the rightful name, back to the tradition and history and cultural heritage of the people who named it thousands of years ago before anyone else was out there. So we think it was a good call. Senator, thank you very much. We appreciate you.